Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Good morning. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. A federal grand jury here in L.A. has charged a Houston-based oil company in connection with last October's Southern California oil spill. Federal prosecutors say Amplify Energy and two of its subsidiaries that operate oil rigs in a pipeline off Long Beach are each facing a single misdemeanor count for illegally discharging oil. The indictment says the companies were negligent by failing to respond to a series of alarms that should have alerted them to the spill more than 13 hours before a ruptured pipeline was shut down. Investigators believe that pipeline was damaged months earlier when a ship's anchor struck it. The October spill dumped about 25,000 gallons of crude oil into the ocean. If convicted, the charge carries up to five years of probation for the corporation and fines that potentially could total millions of dollars. California is expanding its program aimed at creating more housing for unhoused people. As KQED's Kate Wolf reports, the state has announced funding for four new projects, with more to come in the weeks ahead, as it plans to distribute almost $2.8 billion. Governor Gavin Newsom started this project, called Home Key, a few months into the pandemic. The idea was to turn hotels and other buildings into housing for people experiencing homelessness. Now, as part of this expansion of Home Key, the city of Victorville and Kern County are getting funding. And San Mateo County is getting about $69 million for two new projects, including a navigation center in Redwood City. County Supervisor Warren Slocum represents the area. It's really going to mean a change in the way that we deliver homelessness services here in San Mateo County. Slocum says this navigation center, the county's first, will have over 200 units and will provide wraparound services when it's scheduled to open in just over a year's time. For the California Report, I'm Kate Wolf. California and neighboring states have agreed to take less water from the dwindling Colorado River. The California Report's Keith Mizuguchi has the details. Roughly a quarter of the water used in areas serviced by the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California comes from the Colorado River through the country's largest reservoir, Lake Mead. But that lake has been severely depleted after years of drought and overuse. It hasn't been full since 1983. 
Water leaders here and in Nevada and Arizona agreed to reduce their take from the river to avoid more dramatic mandatory cuts in the future. The agreement, called the 500-plus plan, was signed on Wednesday at the Colorado River Water Users Association annual meeting in Las Vegas. It requires the states to cut back on enough water to serve up to 1.5 million households annually. Officials are still negotiating exactly how much water each state will contribute. For the California Report, I'm Keith Mizuguchi. In L.A. County, there's still a wide gap in vaccination rates between black and Latino residents compared to whites, Asians, and Native Americans. That despite aggressive vaccine outreach. The disparity in L.A. is stark, especially when vaccination numbers between different communities of color are closing in several northern California counties. KCRW's Kaylee Wells reports. In L.A., 56% of black residents and 61% of Latino residents are partially vaccinated. That's a far cry from the more than three-quarters of white, Native American, and Asian American residents who have gotten at least one dose. Meanwhile, in Santa Clara County, that gap is almost closed. In San Francisco, vaccination rates among black residents actually narrowly outpace their white counterparts, and Latinos there lead with a vaccination rate of 90%. Public health officials here are stumped. They say mobile vaccination sites and community group partnerships have helped narrow the gap, but it's unclear why Northern California is narrowing it faster. Now, L.A.'s Department of Public Health is looking into training their youth and community ambassadors to speak with hesitant residents about getting vaccinated. For the California Report, I'm Kaylee Wells in Los Angeles. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Yesterday, protesters gathered in San Francisco to urge the Biden administration to stop detaining immigrants at a county jail north of Sacramento. This is the last public facility in California to keep a detention contract with U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement. KQD's Farida Javala-Romero reports. Immigrant advocates and formerly detained people say now is the right time for ICE to end its contract with the Yuba County Jail in Marysville. Shut it down! Yuba County Jail! Last year, in April, ICE held more than 140 people at the jail, but all were released during the pandemic, in part due to a federal judge's orders. Now, how many people are detained at Yuba County Jail right now? Zero! Still, ICE pays Yuba County nearly $24,000 daily, even with no one detained. But the facility has been under federal court supervision for more than 40 years for substandard conditions. Ricardo Vasquez was held at Yuba for more than three years with poor medical care and food that made his stomach hurt, he says. 
He says he doesn't want another human being to go through what he did. A NICE spokeswoman declined to say whether the agency will send new detainees to Yuba. And a Yuba County Sheriff's spokeswoman says they're not expecting ICE to hold anyone there this week. She also defended the jail, saying they've worked diligently to meet ICE's detention standards. For the California Report, I'm Farida Javala-Romero in San Francisco. Many Californians who work in offices haven't been to their workplaces in nearly two years because of the pandemic. So here's a question. Can some of that commercial real estate be put to another use? Well, with cities like L.A. in the midst of a severe housing crisis, some want to turn office buildings into homes. KPCC's David Wagner has that story. In downtown L.A., Fifth Street between Broadway and Hill buzzes with the sound of passing cars and commuters leaving the Pershing Square metro stop. But when you walk through the doors of the Metropolitan Building and take the elevator up to Karen Tracy's 10th floor apartment, Hello. suddenly everything sounds subdued. It's much quieter. We do have more of sort of a bird's eye view of what's going on. The thick walls of this concrete edifice didn't always house apartments. Built in 1913, the Metropolitan originally contained medical offices and shops, even an early branch of the LA Public Library. And I'm a big book nerd, so the idea of living in an old library is pretty cool. Like much of downtown, the Metropolitan entered a period of decline in the late 20th century. But about a decade ago, with residents pouring back into downtown, this underused commercial building was converted into loft-style apartments. Tracy says the building has a unique feel. I like the idea of living somewhere. The original intent perhaps wasn't to house people. You can imagine the commerce that used to take place in this building. Downtown LA has become a hotspot for converting old commercial space into housing. Karin Liljegren is the founder of LA architecture firm Omgivning, which specializes in adaptive reuse. That means basically taking an existing building and changing the use of what it was to something new. Liljegren says with the pandemic changing where people work, these conversions could become a lot more common. I definitely think that more and more office space will be turned to housing, and it should be. Liljegren sees many upsides to adaptive reuse. Keeping old buildings in place preserves neighborhood character, and she says it's more environmentally friendly than tearing buildings down. We all need to start thinking about reuse. Just to think about demolishing a building and the energy that takes and where that goes and bringing in all new stuff and starting from scratch, it just doesn't make any sense. In a recent report for UC Berkeley's Turner Center, Elliot Kwan highlighted a number of projects across California that turned old commercial buildings into housing. He says there is promise in this approach, but it isn't always as straightforward as it seems. Commercial buildings, especially those built in America during the 20th century, don't really vibe well with how the building needs to perform for residential uses. Take those old office buildings in downtown L.A. They were great for reuse because they were built relatively narrow. Remember, this was before air conditioning, so all the rooms needed windows to bring in fresh air and natural light. But with the rise of air conditioning, L.A.'s newer office buildings got fatter, with huge windowless interiors. Kwan says renters won't want to live in those spaces. Those types of mismatches tend to lead to pretty costly rehabilitation measures from the architectural and construction side. And that high cost means these conversions won't necessarily create housing that's affordable. There needs to be a lot of other financial mechanisms that support it for it to become affordable. So it 
Not impossible, but I would say difficult. Another Turner Center paper found that of all the state's large metro areas, LA has recently created the most new housing through commercial to residential conversions. Still, these conversions are pretty limited. Issy Romem, one of the paper's authors, says even if LA's conversion rate tripled in coming years, it wouldn't make a huge dent in the region's need for new housing. If we are really aiming to get California's housing price appreciation more in line with the rest of the nation, we're going to need to touch single-family areas and get them to start densifying. Still, adaptive reuse proponents see lots of untapped potential. With some creativity, they say many office buildings, strip malls, and shopping centers can be turned into housing, especially as demand for those spaces dries up. Back at the Metropolitan Building, Karen Tracy says even if she wanted to go back to the office, her company won't have an office to return to. My company decided to become fully remote. We are giving up our office space. The future of that office space is now anyone's guess. For The California Report, I'm David Wagner in Los Angeles. Interest in cycling has boomed since the beginning of the pandemic, with sales of both old-fashioned muscle-powered bicycles and newfangled electrically-powered e-bikes soaring over the past couple of years. Many transportation planners and environmentalists celebrate the bike boom as a way to both reduce congestion and fight climate change. But looking ahead to the new year, California cycling advocates say much more has to be done by the state and cities to improve bike infrastructure and safety. At a recent cycling event here in L.A., the California Report talked about these issues with Dave Snyder, the executive director of the Sacramento-based California Bicycling Coalition. Everybody that we talk to who would ride a bicycle because their trips are, you know, three to five miles tells us, I'm afraid of traffic. I don't want to be on the road with a car speeding by me, one mistake, and I'm dead. And we know that it's safer than most people think, but they have a good point. So what needs to happen is the construction of a network of bikeways where you are protected from traffic with some kind of barrier. Like they have in all the countries in the world that have a lot of bicycling, uh, we need to have that here. That is still the major issue, is just people not feeling safe when they trade four wheels, an automobile for two wheels, a bike. That's the main issue, yeah. People have to feel safe, and and we're not moving nearly fast enough. So it comes down to that. It comes down to the willingness to invest in safer streets. And because of all the infrastructure spending that's coming the way of California and a lot of other places, you think now is the moment to, to really have that conversation? Yeah. The excuse of we don't have enough money doesn't fly anymore. There's enough money. What we need is the political will to spend it on protected bikeways quickly. It can take five to ten years to build one lousy bike lane sometimes because of the, the outreach and the design and the the unnecessary environmental review that you have to do, uh, it should not take that long. You, you go to uh, cities all over the world and they build entire bikeway networks in three years. And at the rate we're going, it's going to take us a couple of decades. There's no reason not to do it and to do it quickly. Well, good riding in the coming year. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to talk. Again, that's Dave Snyder of the California Bicycling Coalition. And that is the California Report for Thursday, December 16th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks for listening and have a great day.
Support for the California Report comes from Water Heaters Only, specializing in the repair and replacement of water heaters since 1968. Licensed and insured, open 24 hours a day, every day. Learn more at waterheatersonly.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Futures, focused on finding exceptional people and helping them do more for others together, on the web at schmidtfutures.com, and Stanford Medicine, protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org slash AdaptingCare. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading!